Good morning. It's time for this week's episode of History's Hook, sponsored by SurfPro, with your host, Tom Price. Take it away, Tom. Hello, and welcome to History's Hook, where I guarantee we'll get you hooked on history. I'm your host, Tom Price. Each week on History's Hook, we'll be bringing you interesting and informative stories from the past in an effort to connect the history in our own backyard to the big events that compose national and world history. We'll explore a new topic every week and bring in experts and eyewitnesses to the events and places we'll be talking about. This is not your high school history class. We're going to make history fun and compelling. We're going to get you hooked. I'm joined in the studio today by a guest co-host, Judge Christopher Sockwell. Judge Sockwell is a circuit court judge for the 22nd District, appointed to that position by Tennessee Governor Bill Haslam in 2018. A graduate of David Lipscomb University and the University of Tennessee College of Law, Judge Sockwell was previously an attorney in private practice before being appointed to the bench to represent the circuit of Giles, Lawrence, Murray, and Wayne Counties. Judge Sockwell is a keen student of history and a welcome addition to History's Hook. Judge Sockwell, good morning to you. Good morning, Tom. Together, the judge and I are honored to have joining us in the studio Mr. Rick Burt. Born and raised in Murray County, Tennessee, Mr. Burt graduated from Columbia Central High School before pursuing a college education at Columbia State Community College, then a bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering at Tennessee Tech University in Cookville. Mr. Burt worked for the Tennessee Valley Authority's nuclear power program before joining NASA in 1990 as a manager in Marshall Space Flight Center's reusable solid rocket motor project. Mr. Burt worked on the space shuttle's propulsion elements, including as chief engineer for the reusable solid rocket motor project from 2000 to 2005, where he was instrumental in getting the shuttle program back on track following the loss of Space Shuttle Columbia in 2003. For his work to that end, Mr. Burt was awarded the NASA Outstanding Leadership Medal. In 2006, he was appointed to the Senior Executive Service and was named manager of the Ares-1 First Stage, the rocket program that preceded development of NASA's flagship launch vehicle, the Space Launch System. Mr. Burt served as Marshall's Chief Safety Officer from 2011 to 2016, and just this past January was appointed Deputy Director of NASA's Marshall Space Flight Center, where he manages nearly 6,000 employees and an annual budget of $3.6 billion. Mr. Burt, welcome to History's Hook. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Before we get into the details of your fascinating career, what, in your opinion, is the most exciting thing happening in space exploration today? Well, as you know, today we leverage heavily off of partnerships with the commercial crew program, and uh, we have commercial carriers that are helping us uh, service the International Space Station in low Earth orbit. So NASA's investment is evolving into deep space exploration, returning to the moon, and then on to Mars. And so we've been developing and are building and now integrating at the Vehicle Assembly Building at Kennedy Space Center the first launch of the Artemis program. And if you recall, Artemis is the twin sister of Apollo. So if everything goes as scheduled uh, near the end of this year or very early next year, the Artemis One mission will launch uncrewed and do a loop or two around the moon to verify the launch system uh, readiness uh, to accept crewed mission. The next mission would be a crewed mission uh, in the vicinity of the moon a couple of years later. But we're very excited that we're now uh, within a few months of being able to fly this uh, Artemis One rocket, which is the largest uh, launch vehicle system ever built. 
We're going to come back to Artemis uh, towards the end of the show. It's incredibly exciting what's what's on the horizon uh, in space exploration. Mr. Burr, you were raised in Murray County, Tennessee, fairly rural area in Middle Tennessee, a little bit south of Nashville. What was your upbringing like? Who are your parents? My parents were uh, originally from uh, Alabama for my dad, born and raised in Decatur, Alabama. And he wound up moving to Nashville and then ultimately to Columbia because his dad worked for L&N Railroad at the time. And my mom was raised here in Columbia. And uh, we grew up, uh, my brother and I, uh, in Columbia. And we lived uh, in town, uh, not too far from the radio station here for a number of years. My grandmother and great-grandmother were florists here in town. So my dad helped his mom in the florist business. He also got into the taxidermist business. He was a farmer. He was a trapper. He uh, did a lot of things. When he came back from World War II, he took on a lot of different jobs. And, and my dad is an example of one who was very patriotic about patriotic to serve uh, in World War II. And when he got back from the war, he was looking for a way to raise his family, and he got slowly evolved into doing farming work uh, predominantly. And so we grew up on the farm with beef cattle, raising hogs, uh, raising tobacco, which at the time, uh, Columbia was really, this whole area was really big in barley tobacco production. And that is kind of the environment I grew up in. Everybody would come in at the end of uh, summer and go back to school and talk about what they did at summer on their vacation. Well, our summer vacation was hauling hay and cutting tobacco. And uh, that's what me and my brother grew up doing. And that we've certainly learned the value of hard work. And that began my th thinking process about, you know, the things you deal with on a day-to-day -day basis on the farm. Part of that includes fixing things that break and engineering thoughts came into mind about, you know, I think I would like to learn how to do more fixing of things that break and, and designing things maybe that don't break. Huh. Very interesting. So f farming is the beginning of your engineering. Farming was the beginning of my engineering. I was mentored by my dad and my brother uh, and was taught early on the value of the things that we deal with in the space business, uh, things like hazard analysis and fault tolerance and, and having a backup plan when something doesn't go right because Murphy's Law applies to everything, and it certainly applies to the, the farmers, and, uh, and it certainly applies in the space business as well. What kind of student were you in school? I I was uh, I was a I was a decent student. I uh, I enjoyed school. I was one of those who I excelled more in my school career in math and science. I loved that the most. Uh, when I got to Central High School curriculum opportunities, I took all the math I could take. I wound up taking uh, mechanical drawing two years of that, which I really loved. And some of the math teachers that I had in high school really inspired me, uh, especially my geometry teacher. I really got more and more interested in uh, engineering fields when I, when I got a good grasp of geometry and trigonometry, of course, algebra and all those things. I started understanding how you 
designed and analyzed systems, and you needed those mathematical foundations to be able to do that. And this was before, this was right on the cusp of uh, computer age where we just started typing Fortran punch cards uh, in the early days. So it was just starting. When I was coming into high school uh, as a senior, we were just learning some basics of computer Fortran. And, and from there on into my college career, it kind of expanded more into a curriculum with, with that kind of work uh, on the computer. There weren't PCs. There weren't, you'd go type out your programs and, and do your Fortran things and have a stack of cards and you'd take them to the computer center, turn them in, they would run, you would get your, come back later and get your uh, printouts and fix all your errors for the next three or four days. And, <laughs> but that's how it got started. And that, so I got into the computer age uh, at that level and I think it's passed me by a lot since then because the technology just took off. I, I was still using slide rules, and we learned slide rule in high school. So uh, for our listeners, what, what time frame are we talking about? You graduated from high school in what year? 1974. 74. So was the space race, were you, were you interested in what was happening in, in space and space exploration? Well, you know, that was, that was near the uh, tail end of the Apollo program, and I— I remember being uh, watching live uh, Neil Armstrong uh, step onto the moon. I remember in high school, we took a field trip to the Space and Rocket Center in Huntsville. And I remember that being an intriguing visit to actually see some of that space hardware and get to understand a little bit more about what NASA was doing and what uh, lies ahead in terms of where do we go from here after going to the moon? Will we go back to the moon? What, what's the future of space exploration? Uh, it was very intriguing to me, and really and truly, I, you know, I realized it's literally the Huntsville area uh, where the uh, space program was heavily involved was really in our backyard here in Columbia. It, it was literally in our backyard. Right. Um, you graduated from high school. What was your next step going to be? What did you want to be? when you were your 18-year-old self? Well, I, you know, I pretty much locked in at that point that I wanted to go into engineering. And my uh, choice was to attend Columbia State Community College. Uh, I received an academic scholarship to uh, attend Columbia State, and that was my plan all along was to attend Columbia State and get my associate's degree in pre-engineering. And uh, that's what I did uh, and graduated with an associate's degree in 1976. And then I transferred, was admitted to Tennessee Tech University in Cookville. And from there, I completed my bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering in 1978. It's really incredible. And that's, that's as far as you got academically. You have a bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering. Yeah, I, and, I, just, and, I have a, a bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering. Which, which is not a small thing, something I could certainly never do. Uh, but when you think of uh, Deputy Director Marshall's Space Flight Center, I, I guess I would be under the assumption that that person probably has a PhD, maybe two, and think of places like uh, MIT. Uh, you have a bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering from Tennessee Tech University. Yeah, and that's, uh, it's not uncommon for a lot of the leadership in the agency to not necessarily have those advanced degrees. Many do. There's a good mixture, but our center director, Jody Singer, 
uh, does not have a, a doctorate or a, a master's degree. She has an industrial engineering degree from the University of Alabama. And so when you get to that level, it's your career has been heavily involved in a lot of technical work. There's no doubt. But we have so many subject matter experts that are the PhDs in the various fields of science, physics, engineering, chemistry, uh, with all of our laboratories. When you become a leader at that level and are able to lead a group of people, the most powerful tool you have is networking. The relationships you build and the folks that you know who have the answers. You don't always have to know the technical answer to everything, but you do need to know where to go get it and where to go find it. And being a basic engineer uh, with a bachelor's degree, you can speak the language of physics and, and, and structural materials and chemistry and all of those different fields that it takes for us to do the work we do to build and fly these vehicles and collect the science. So it's having that network is, is the most critical thing that you build through your career. And the basis of that knowledge that you got came from Columbia State Community College and Tennessee Tech. State, Absolutely. State that was the great foundation for me. It prepared me very well. I think I uh, can remember when Columbia State Community College was first announced coming to Columbia and it was being built, and in 1966, it was dedicated on a visit uh, by President Lyndon Johnson, and I was there in attendance at that dedication. Mm-hmm. I'll never forget that. I was 10 years old uh, that year, and I saw that, and it inspired me, and and at that time, I said, I want to go to college here someday uh, in my own hometown and, and start my education here after high school, and it kind of worked out exactly that way. Doctor, Mr. Burt, I'm fascinated by that because I think it's such an important lesson to young people in this area, especially and those that maybe come from humble means to say, you can go anywhere you want to and start at Columbia State because now you are responsible for billions of dollars, thousands of employees, uh, an area where it's under the microscope by the entire country when something happens. And, and if you could just elaborate on that for the young people that uh, that are looking for a way to advance themselves and how important a place like Columbia State is. Well, Columbia State being the uh, the college, uh, community college system that it has now, which is much bigger than it was when I went, is a, a great starting point. Many people don't know for sure what they want to do in their four-year college or beyond experience. Starting at Columbia State gives you a strong foundation for your next step in your education. And it's right here at home. They have really top-notch professors. They have top-notch facilities and laboratories. And they have all of the curriculum that anyone would need to get started on their college career and build that foundation to go to the next level, the next step, wherever it takes them. But I'm so proud to be in a town that had such a well-established and very uh, accomplished school. My brother had also attended. He's five years older than me, and he had gone to Columbia State ahead of me. And I knew what a quality education you could get there, and that would springboard you on to your future uh, academic endeavors, wherever you wanted to go. But uh, you get a very strong 
uh, foundation there, and I'm really proud to be a graduate of Columbia State Community College, and I've, I've always felt like that was the right decision to make, and anybody coming out of high school now should consider that as a great first step to your college education because it's right here at home, and it's very, very uh, good uh, curriculum, broad areas, and you're well prepared to go to the next level. You graduated from Tennessee Tech. What was the first job you had out of college? My first job out of college, if you recall, the Tennessee Valley Authority at that time, their nuclear program uh, for power plants was booming, and they were building nuclear power plants across uh, the state of Tennessee and North Alabama and even in northern Mississippi. And uh, they were looking for engineers to bring into the nuclear power program for those plants. And I had nine different offers from TVA of different places that I could go work. They were really hungry, especially for mechanical engineers. And being a Middle Tennessee uh, native, I wanted to kind of stay in the Tennessee Valley region. And I thought that was a great opportunity for me to get in early into the nuclear uh, power plant business. And so my first job was with TVA at the Hartsville Nuclear Plant, which just a little bit east of Nashville it was going to be the world's largest nuclear plant, a four-unit plant. And from there, I went on to work at the Watts Bar Nuclear Plant in Spring City, Tennessee. And then ultimately, how I got to Alabama was we worked, my wife and I both worked for TVA. That's where we met, and we wound up at the Browns Ferry Nuclear Plant uh, near Athens, Alabama. Hmm. And what was your capacity? in these jobs what, what did you do were you building these places or were you we were yeah we were in the process of heavy construction at Hartsville. uh as it as i evolved into the other locations i worked at the plants were more complete we were doing modifications work inside the plant updating equipment uh bringing in new designs and equipment change outs as a result of three mile island uh, some of the uh, the fire experience from the Browns Ferry nuclear plant, uh, all of those fixes that the Nuclear Regulatory Commission was following, we were following behind that with upgrades to the systems to make the systems more robust and improve the reliability of the systems and the safety of the plants. And I spent a lot of time in modification work, seven, 12-hour days, that kind of things, trying to get the plant plants ready to go online and produce power. Wow. And you were prepared to do this right out of undergraduate school. You were working these engineering problems and Absolutely. getting the job done. It, you know, it prepares you when you get, when you get the basics uh, right out of a, a engineering degree, you're well prepared to understand the, the kind of things that you're going to encounter. A lot of what you don't learn is the uh, soft skills, the people skills, the soft stuff is the hard stuff, as people will tell you, and you don't get prepared for that, but that's where it goes back to where I mentioned about building relationships and working with people, learning how to work with people and solve problems. Every day is problem solving, and engineers are well uh, versed in problem solving. And In fact, sometimes they jump to the solution uh, before they really frame the problem properly. But you learn to work together as a team, and you learn to use the engineering fundamentals that you bring to the table. You're working with electrical engineers. You're working with uh, civil engineers. You're working with all disciplines of engineers, 
and you put your heads together to try to solve a lot of these problems and try to, you know, do the best you can uh, to get it right and make sure you're solving the right problem. So problem solving was is right in the wheelhouse of an engineer. That's the basis basis of it all. You spent 12 years with TVA and then joined NASA. That's a to an outsider seems like a pretty big jump, but maybe not. If the basis of engineering is problem solving, it really doesn't matter maybe where you're working. If you have the ability to solve problems and work with disciplines, various disciplines, you can get the job done. What was it like making that transfer to NASA? Well, it was a it was a day and night shift because at all the, the three different nuclear power plants I'd worked at, the technology, the systems were all very similar, all pretty much the same. And when I had the opportunity to apply for a job at NASA, they were in uh, a post-Challenger era of bringing back the shuttle program and reestablishing a flight rhythm and getting back. And one of the things they needed was to bring the shuttle elements that were managed at the Marshall Space Flight Center the external tank, the main engines, the solid rocket boosters, the solid rocket motors, and integration was all managed there in Huntsville. And it was the critical part of being able to continue the shuttle program. And so they were bringing in people to help be part of those projects and programs. And I was very interested at the time. I knew that I would like to be able to work for NASA because I'd always viewed it as a pinnacle of technical cutting-edge advancements, and the real pinnacle of an engineer's career would probably be to be called a rocket scientist. And uh, absolutely, where I was working on the solid rocket motors was purely rocket science (laughs) from every field of engineering you can imagine that goes in to building those boosters and those solid rocket motors. And it was just uh, an opportunity too good to pass up. And several of us that worked at TVA were pulled in. We were highly valued uh, to come to NASA. And so at the time I came in early 1990, several others came too. Mr. Bird, I have a a question on uh, the timing of when you went into TVA and also when you went into NASA. Uh, You'd mentioned the Browns Ferry disaster, and it wasn't quite a full disaster, but it was really close. Uh, in 1976, you came on to TVA in 78, and then the Challenger disaster in 1987, and you came into NASA at 1990. Talk about how both of those entities were into the problem-solving risk assessment at probably a higher mode than they would normally be when you came in, and how much that impacted you in, in what you do now. Well, that's a very good question. And and in both of those environments at the time, the motivation was to understand what happened, why it happened, and what we need to do to keep it from happening again. And the things that needed to be changed, uh, there were a lot of lessons learned in both of those scenarios, both with TVA and at NASA from the Challenger. And so applying those lessons and regrouping more or less as a corporate function to get back on track with the main objective for TVA. It was to get these plants back up running safely and generating affordable power for the Tennessee Valley. For NASA, it was continuing the work of the space shuttle program to go forward and, as you know, uh, eventually put together the International Space Station 
and have people uh, able to live and work in space and advance the ability to fly multiple missions a year on the space shuttle. So they both had the same uh, motivation to get things back up and running even better than before in a more robust and safe manner. And so that, w that intrigued me because the problem solving that goes along with that and the anal analyzing of those problems and how to prevent recurrence is the kind of thing we focused on in both, in both areas because uh, money, the meter is running every day. Every day that you're not making power, it costs money. Every day that you're not flying, it costs money. So we were both, both of those uh, career steps for me were uh, working feverishly to try to get things back up and running and get them back up and running in a more safely uh, executed manner. Most of our listeners are going to be somewhat familiar with solid rocket boosters and the space shuttle years. Can you explain in layman's terms, just so we're all on the same page, when you're wor working on the solid rocket boosters and the solid rocket motors, what does that mean? Well, uh, most people need to understand a solid rocket motor is one that is, it has a very thick, heavy steel case lined with a rubber insulator. And then what's inside is a propellant that is mixed uh, very similarly to um, a, a, a heavy-duty dough mixer. It mixes these propellant ingredients, which the main ingredients, you know, are an oxidizer and a propellant. A solid rocket motor gets cast and tailored. The grain on the inside gets tailored for a certain performance profile. Once it's cured, it, it resembles the texture of a pencil eraser. And when you light or ignite a solid rocket booster, you can't turn it off. You're going somewhere. <laughs> it, it, you can't throttle it. You can't turn it off. So as you realize, as you saw during the Challenger disaster when the, the, the vehicle exploded, that the boosters had to be exploded with the range safety system because they were still flying off on tangents. But, that, uh, but it provides a tremendous amount of thrust to accomplish mission objectives, and we still use it today for this new vehicle. It's going to be a bigger version of what we had, but solid rocket boosters have solid propellant, a lot like you might think in, in fireworks. Interesting. Um, you are not the only NASA scientist to be from Columbia, Tennessee. I don't know if you know this or not, but we have another. His name is Mr. Kerry Nettles. He was one of the scientists that worked on the problem of using liquid hydrogen as a rocket propellant back in the 1950s and 1960s. He was the Centaur project manager and had been chief of the flight projects branch at Lewis Laboratory in the days of the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics, or NACA, a precursor to NASA. For his superhuman efforts, that's what the certificate says, that boosted the surveyor lander toward the moon, he was awarded NASA's Distinguished Service Medal in 1966. He retired in 1969, and today Mr. Nettles is 105 years old and still going strong, living here in Columbia. Centaur, the project that Mr. Nettles worked on, was an upper-stage rocket. You were named manager of the Ares-1 first-stage program. America's space program seems to have been based on lessons learned from one project that leads then to the next. Is it safe to say Ares is a descendant of Centaur and all of the other programs that came before it? 
Uh, yes, it's very safe to say that everything that you've learned in previous programs, uh, and to some extent, you carry forward to the next. And those lessons learned and the things you learn about how to get the performance you need for the mission you want are very valuable. It's a continuation. And one of the things I love about NASA and learning about it is it's it's work today based on history. It is a continuation, a, a singular continuation from the beginnings of, of early space flight in the 1940s, even 1950s, all the way until now. We need to take a break. When we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Mr. Burt talking about his experiences with the Ares-1 project. We'll be right back on History's Hook. Don't go away. History's Hook, sponsored by ServPro, will be right back right after this brief commercial break. ServPro cleans and restores homes and businesses without delay to get you back on track right away. Fire, water, storm damage, mold remediation, basic cleaning, ServPro, 24-7 emergency service. Faster to any disaster like it never even happened. SurfPro, 931-388-4248, emergency service, 388-4248. One-stop shopping. That's why so many people shop Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram Fiat of Columbia. As the number one volume CDJR dealer in Tennessee, we offer the largest selection of new Ram, Jeep, Dodge, and Chrysler vehicles. And when you have the largest selection of new, you have the largest selection of used, too. Combine that with state-of-the-art fast, accurate service, and you've got Tennessee's number one volume dealer. Shop online at Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram of Columbia.net. Middle Tennessee's Ram Truck and Jeep Headquarters. You can count on us. Based on combined retail and fleet sales is awarded by Chrysler in the state of Tennessee in 2019. Why do people trust Tills Jewelry with their jewelry repairs? Hi, this is Terry Tillis. We feel each piece of jewelry is important to our customers and they deserve the utmost care with every item that is brought to us. Your jewelry is inspected when we receive it to determine exactly what repairs are needed. A photo is taken and documented and then it goes to our goldsmith. Once the repair is completed, the jewelry is reinspected to make sure it has been restored to its original condition. Come see us at Tills Jewelry, located in Columbia and Lewisburg. For 40 years, Beck Dental Care has been the personalized and comfortable option for the health of your smile. The caring staff maintains a high level of safety protocols and attention to detail. Advanced technology provides your choice of sedation and the best of dental implant solutions to restore complete oral health. Open until 7 p.m. two nights a week. 931-388-8452. Beck Dental Care in Columbia, 1603 Rosewood Drive. Hey folks, it's Chandler Anderson from the Right Care Primary Care and Pediatric Clinic. Folks, we are open from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. Monday through Thursday. We provide pediatric care, primary care, and even urgent care if you need to get in during those hours. Our provider there is Kelly Kelly. She does DOT exams as well as well woman exams, and she does our pediatric well child physicals. So folks, if you're looking for the right care and a provider that's not going anywhere, come see us at the Right Care Primary Care and Pediatric Office. History's Hook, sponsored by SurfPro, with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom. Welcome back to History's Hook. Today, we are honored to have in the studio with us Mr. Rick Burt, who is the Deputy Director of the Marshall Space Flight Center in Huntsville, Alabama. Mr. Burt, we're talking about your career, uh, illustrious career at NASA. You are the project leader on uh, Ares-1 uh, which preceded development of NASA's flagship launch vehicle, the Space Launch System, or SLS, which is the most powerful rocket ever created. Can you explain 
How does one manage the information, the invention, the innovation that is generated from an agency that employs thousands of people working in separate directorates, agencies, and companies all over the continent to come to a to conclude a single project? How how is that done? Well, it's uh, it's not always easy, and it really demands a lot of communication and teamwork. And teamwork being the the key. Not only do you have the various players at the Marshall Space Flight Center, we have the various other NASA centers, academia, others who are partners uh, in industry that we work with. And it takes a lot of that interaction and communication to be able to pull that all together as a team that's focused on one common objective, what that mission objective is, what the performance of the rocket needs to be, how you're going to build and design that rocket to fly safely, reliably, and affordably for the American taxpayer who owns the rocket, more or less. You mentioned two things right there. So from 2007 to 2011, you managed the engineering directorate's test laboratory. Then you served as Marshall's chief safety officer in safety and mission assurance directorate. It seems that testing and safety are two of the chief pillars of NASA's mission. Talk about risk leadership as a business strategy that you've employed at NASA. Well, it all all comes down to risk leadership. Every time you solve a problem or every time you face making a decision, you want to make sure that you are making risk-informed decisions, uh, taking inputs from your team about the risks that they see and the hazards that they see. One of the disciplines that we use is hazard analysis, where hazards get identified, and then we dissect those hazards to determine ways to either eliminate the hazard, minimize the hazard, or to accept the hazard-associated risk once we've done all that we know how to do to solve it or make it go away. And so using that approach falls right back in line with what a lot of people do on a day-to-day basis in their their regular lives that they may not realize that hazard analysis is something that they uh, do sometimes and sometimes they don't. But uh, if you're building a playhouse for your grandkids in your backyard, you're going to think about hazard analysis before you build that to keep them from getting their head stuck in between two boards or keep them from falling off the ladder or, you know, things like that. You just think through that and try to identify all those hazards, sand the wood down so splinters don't get in their feet. It's, it's, it's much similar to what we do when we divide, de, de, design, develop, test uh, these launch vehicles and systems because we have to take into account everything that we could possibly think of that might could go wrong. And we do our best to try to remediate that, uh, correct it, uh, incorporate it into the design early so it gets uh, uh, built the right way to mitigate and uh, leave us with a lower level of uh, residual risk at the end that, that we weren't able to maybe, we couldn't come up with a technologically sound way to make it go away, or we couldn't find a way to be able to afford to do it. It would just cost prohibitive to go the extra mile to completely eliminate it. But we do the very best we can 
to manage by those risks. And risk leadership is the key to what we do in the space business, and we have to do it on a daily basis. On that risk assessment, um, Mr. Burke, talk about how that transfers into everyday life for all of us. How, uh, and I know you worked on a farm where you're going to do risk assessment on basically everything you do because a farm can be a very dangerous place as a child. And so how can we translate that risk assessment or recognize that we're doing risk assessments on a a day-to-day existence? Because so many times now, it seems like parents and individuals want to eliminate 100% of the risk, but the reality is, can we even, can we even get that far? That's a, a very good question. And in and, and real life, you know, every day we face risks uh, from the day you leave home to go somewhere to the day you come back. And our objective is for everybody to uh, come home safely at the end of the day uh, in one piece. And, you know, when you think about the inherent risks of driving, um, wearing your safety belt, your seat belt, uh, following the speed limit laws and all this, like you go through a school zone. The reason you go through a school zone at 35 miles an hour is not trivial. I mean, there's a real reason for that, and that's because there are kids in the area darting in and out, and you want to make sure that you're going at a slow enough speed that you can stop and avoid, you know, striking someone, a pedestrian or so forth. So you think about reasons why we have things like that. It's because we've looked at the risks. And everything we do, we subconsciously probably do a what-if scenario. Well, what if uh, we go to the football game and it rains? Well, part of the hazard mitigation is you might take your umbrella. Uh, But if you see lightning, the other mitigation is you go to your car. Uh, But you need to be thinking – one step ahead of everything you do every day. And growing up on the farm was no different. Everything we did was uh, mechanical, uh, powerful power equipment, uh, lots of spinning things, uh, power takeoff, shafts turning, uh, animals behaving as animals do. You've got to think about yourself and the hazards uh, presented and think about what would you do? What if? What is your what is your backup plan? What would you do if this happened? What if you had uh, a load of hay on a wagon that you were pulling behind your truck and you had a flat tire on that trailer? Do you have you have the capability to change that tire? Do you have a jack that would do that job? In fact, do you have two jacks that you might need, uh, knowing the load of what you're dealing with? Everything we did on the farm was about safety, and it was so fraught with lots of hazards. Um, I, I remember we, we worked a lot in the barns when we were uh, harvesting the tobacco and hanging tobacco that we bring in from the field. You would literally stand on tier rails in the barn from the lowest level all the way to the top of the barn and pass up these sticks of tobacco. Well, you're standing, you're standing on one foot on a four by four, the other foot on a four by four, and you may be 30, 40 feet off the ground. And you're not, you're not wearing a safety belt. You're, you're, you're always moving, uh, your location as, as it goes along. And you think about those things. What am I going to, what if my, my foot slips, what am I going to do? What, you know, what kind of things can I do? You need to be thinking about, well, what would I do? I, what would I grab? Or 
do I fall through and everybody below me, we all go to the ground? I mean, you think about that kind of thing and you, you, you put your hands in a place where when you're not uh, able to have two or three point contact, you think about what would I do? That's, that's what you got to do to stay safe. And a lot of people will take chances. And the worst, worst thing that I think you could probably put in the back of your mind and, and lean on is a statement that says probably be all right. <laughs> probably be all right is is uh, it gives people comfort but it 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 doesn't give me much comfort and my lessons learned growing up on the farm and then and working in the engineering field for nearly 43 years that statement probably preceded many trips to the emergency room right <laughs> yeah. uh, let, let's let's continue with risk for just a minute space flight is inherently risky we've lost astronauts have you known many of them? Can you give us some insight into the people who are willing to climb inside of a rocket to be violently propelled into a hostile and deadly place? I have known uh, a lot of astronauts. I know a lot of astronauts and work with the astronauts quite a bit. Uh, they're a very uh, well-educated, very knowledgeable group of people who definitely understand the risks of what they're doing. And they understand the benefits of what they're doing. And they understand what they're doing, how it can help humanity. And they're willing to put their lives on the line to do what they're very passionate about doing. Many of them have very uh, lengthy academic credentials as well as their military credentials, whether they're pilots or mission specialists. They have a depth of academic knowledge and firsthand experience. And, you know, the thing about our astronaut corps is we borrow those astronauts from their families when we do these missions and put them on these powerful rockets. And our obligation to them and their families is to return them back safely because we're only borrowing them. And they're willing to take on these missions knowing the risks, knowing that they may not come back. Uh, that's just inherent part of the space flight uh, into space and on these very complex machines, uh, literally millions and millions of things have to go right. And only a couple of three things can go wrong. It doesn't take much to have mission failure. And certainly every advanced vehicle, every new opportunity we get, we want to provide more opportunity for escape uh, from the vehicle and ways for the crew to survive something that's going wrong, get away from the vehicle and come back safely. We didn't have that option in space shuttle, and we, and we want to do that for the future. You were at NASA when Space Shuttle Columbia was lost, an event that essentially ended the shuttle program. You were instrumental in helping the agency come back stronger than ever. First, space-related disasters are some of those moments in our history that people always remember. They're dramatic, highly visible, terrifying, the world is watching, and we are all affected by it. People die every day from accidents and health-related issues. What makes spaceflight losses affect us all so much? It's one of those moments we all remember where we were when Challenger exploded. We remember when the day that Columbia was lost. Um, what, what makes spaceflight losses, do you think, affect us all so much? Well, I think, you know, we got a little bit um, of hubris in our system from having so many successes and you, you build on that success and you don't expect failure to happen. Although you realize that failure is always that potential uh, and it's out there. But when you 
look at the um, lessons we've learned through that, you realize that every one of those accidents that happened, had we known better what the risks, what the hazards were, what the hardware was telling us, what it, it was talking to us, had we known what it was telling us and reacted to that in the right way, we, we, we use that information to, to make the future vehicles safer. And the, the way you do that is you go back to the basics of risk leadership and hazard analysis to make sure you've got those bases covered and do those many what-if scenarios and go through that in a formal way to say this is what we would do, this is what would happen, this is how we would mitigate that, this is how we would protect the crew, and this is how we would make sure we give our astronauts the best opportunity to come home safely. What are some of the ways that you can defeat the complacency, the hubris, and the overconfidence? Because it seems to me that's what drifted in in 87 and probably drifted in in 2003. As you said, too much success breeds that. How do you defeat that? How do you control that? Well, you have to constantly communicate that message and remind people. As you get newer generations of employees working in the space program, you have to indoctrinate them, so to speak, on the lessons learned uh, from the past. And you have to keep that in front of them to let them know what how painful that is when you actually lose people that you know and work with and you were entrusted with their safety to try to get them home. And we had a failure that we, you know, we weren't able to do that. And that it, it's going to happen. It's happened before. It, it, you know, it would likely happen in the future. But the, the inherent risk is one of those things that you always have to remind the other people, and we have a special memorial ceremony every January at NASA to remember those fallen astronauts, the ones from Apollo 1, the ones from Challenger, the ones from Columbia, to reinforce that message, to emphasize how important it is to keep that focus on keeping them safe, allowing them to complete the mission safely, and come back home to their families. The next big step in spaceflight, as you mentioned early in the show, is the Artemis program. Can you describe the purpose of Artemis? What do we have to look forward to? Well, so, Artemis is going to take us back into deep space exploration, similar to the way that the Apollo program took us to the moon. We're going to go back uh, to the moon. We're going to go back to the moon with a, a little bit different purpose. We're not going to go just to visit the moon, but our goal is to go set up a habitation uh, environment on the moon and live off the land, so to speak, on the moon. We know there's water on the moon. We know there are opportunities to have habitat and reside on the moon for longer periods of time. We've learned a lot about living and working in space from our experience on the space station. Now, although it's a much different game uh, going to the moon, uh, but the things you need to learn how to do to live and work in space have been invaluable of what we've taken with our international partnership with our partners uh, on the International Space Station. And that's going to prepare us for living off the land, so to speak, when we go back to the moon and then go on from the moon 
to Mars and, and going to the moon, uh, this time, uh, we're going to be doing a lot more research about how we sustain a presence on the moon and how we sustain similarly to a space station. We have people that will be there and we will be making frequent trips to the moon and, and supplying cargo rovers, uh, habitat, things like that, that, uh, can help people on the moon. We know there's ice on the moon and if there's ice, you have water. And if you have water, you can make liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen for rocket fuel. Well, if we decide we want to fly someday from the moon to further destinations, you, if you can manufacture rocket fuel, it's a lot easier to cheat gravity on the surface of the moon than it is on the surface of the earth. And uh, that gives you a, a, a staging place to go deeper into space and, and do deeper space exploration. And we're an, we're an exploration country. We've been, you know, we've always been curious about what's over that next mountain or what's out beyond here or there and what are we going to learn from it? How are we going to apply that to making life better on Earth? And that's what it's all about. And we want to. And we want to, you know, go to the moon, sustain a presence on the moon, and then go from the moon and to beyond and on to Mars and other destinations. And be able to use the resources on the moon to make the next step happen. That's, you, that's incredible thinking. Use the resources on the moon. I mean, we're not talking about now we have to make sure we take everything we need. Now with additive manufacturing, 3D printing, we will have the capability, if we need a special tool, we would have the capability to manufacture it in space. And that's one of the beauties of some of the latest technologies that we want to incorporate in living and working in space is that you transfer the, the CAD file, you get it to the people in space, they have a 3D printer, they have the material. Hopefully someday we'll get the material from the moon itself and we'll be able to manufacture that tool that we need in very short order. And that saves another mission to bring logistical support. One of my favorite scenes out of Apollo 13, the movie, was when they took all the equipment that they had available in the module to build a new air filtration system. They just basically put it in a bag, gave it to the engineers, and they designed that. And that sounds like what you're doing every day. Uh, you're going to put people on the moon, and then you're going to take what the moon has, put it in a bag, dump it in front of engineers, and say, okay, now take us to another place. Uh, and that all goes back simply to working on a farm. <laughs> Mr. Bird is you take what you got on the farm, you put it in a bag, throw it out and say, okay, make something that works for us. It's fascinating to watch this whole process. Uh, you're so right. I mean, that's exactly what it's like. And, you know, once you, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. And if you inspire people to think about things that they can do, you have to do more with less and you have to do the best you can with what you've got. And when you go to a place like that, you're going to try to figure every angle that you can about how can we use the resources of the moon how can we use what's there to take it to the next level that we need to to take it to to be able to sustain that presence and to not just survive but to thrive there and ultimately you know grow food there and with habitats and the things that we can do it's exactly as you described it chris it's taking what you've got thinking hard with a group of people using the diversity of thought, diversity of people's backgrounds. Uh, equity and inclusion is big for us. We want to bring people in with different backgrounds, different experiences, life experiences, and cultures 
to help us get the very best out of our workforce. And when we get the very best out of our workforce and everybody contributing their thoughts and ideas, that's how we get to be the very best of NASA. And NASA Marshall Space Flight Center is a, a fine example of that. And NASA in whole has been graded as the number one place to work in federal government for nine straight years. Besides the NASA Outstanding Leadership Medal, you have also received the Silver Snoopy Award, which is presented by NASA's Astronaut Corps for outstanding contributions to the space program. You are a Spaceflight Awareness Honoree, the highest honor bestowed on NASA workers by the agency's Spaceflight Awareness Program. Are any one of those honors uh, that you are especially proud of? Well, I'm very proud and honored to receive all of that recognition, uh, you know, and I can't take credit for all of that. I was just working hard along with a lot of other people. But let me say, the Silver Snoopy Award uh, that was presented by the astronauts and literally pinned on you by an astronaut uh, stands out as one of the most prestigious awards and still is at NASA because those pins uh, have literally flown in space and they bring those pins back and they and they present them uh, with the astronauts and uh, the when I got my silver snoopy it was presented and pinned on me uh, by Eileen Collins who went, who wound up being the first uh, female commander of the space shuttle and uh, that was a very special moment and you know when the astronauts come to see you in person and invite your family to come be part of that. And it's a big surprise. You don't know about it's coming. They gather you up and it was, it's kind of secretive. You didn't know it. That's very special and it's very memorable and it lasts a lifetime. It's incredible. Uh, you're technically uh, getting towards retirement age. If I'm, if I'm right, your birthday's tomorrow. It is. Happy birthday. Uh, <laughs> What is driving you to continue in this incredibly important, very responsible, very stressful position? Well, you know, a lot of people have asked me that and said, well, you're, you're retirement eligible, aren't you? Yeah, I'm, I'm literally 10 years beyond <laughs> retirement eligible, but I love the work I do. It inspires me every day to work hard, to, to do the best I can do. Not only is it my job to help uh, manage and lead the Marshall Space Flight Center. But another big part of that is mentoring the younger employees, the, the next generation of, of explorers and scientists and engineers and accountants. And we have so many different critical jobs. It's not just rocket scientists that make this happen. It takes a lot of different disciplines. And I tell that when I go do STEM talks to these schools about you don't have to be a wizard in math. You don't have to do all of that. There are many, many fields that you can work in the space program. And, and one of the things that I would say uh, relative to that is that whatever you decide to do, you pick something that you are inspired by. And for me, I want to see this new giant rocket that I've been on from day one I want to see it fly. I want to see it fly the uncrewed mission, and I want to see it fly the crewed mission. So I'm not, I'm not ready to hang up my, my uh, slide rule just yet. I want to hang on and, and see that rocket fly, and hopefully if it can happen, uh, I'll stay around for that uh, because it just excites me every day. And every day I go to work, I go to work with that same excitement 
not drudgery, not dreading what I'm doing, but loving what I'm doing, and knowing that every day is not going to be uh, uh, singing from the hills of the sounds of music. It's every day you're going to be faced with new challenges and new problems, but that's good because you bring together this talented team and you find the best way through that problem and get, you know, get it solved. And uh, it's just what makes me tick. And I, I, I want to stick with it. And, and I love what I do. And I love the people that I work with. Mr. Rick Bird, thank you so much for spending an hour with us here in your hometown. Thank you for your service to our country uh, and indeed your service to the world. We end the show with this quote from pioneer aerospace engineer Werner von Braun. Don't tell me that man doesn't belong out there in space. Man belongs wherever he wants to go, and he'll do plenty well when he gets there. Our guest today has done plenty well. I'd like to thank my co-host, Judge Sockwell, for being on the show today. Thank you for our sponsor, ServPro of Marie and Giles County, for their support. If you have water, smoke, or fire damage, call ServPro. They're faster to any disaster. Thank you, the listeners. Join us again next week as we connect the history in your backyard to the world on another edition of History's Hook. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of History's Hook with Tom Price. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Be sure to tune in every Saturday at 8 a.m. and Sunday at 6 p.m. right here on WKRM 103.7 FM for a journey through time. Today's edition of History's Hook was sponsored by ServPro of Murray and Giles County. ServPro, faster to any disaster. Visit your local Buick and GMC dealership first for new or pre-owned cars, trucks, and SUVs. Parks Motor Sales. At Parks, professional sales staff makes shopping easy. Buick and GMC financing can put you in the vehicle you want. And certified technicians keep vehicles running great. Experience the new Buick at Parks Motor Sales. Go online to parksmotorsales.com. Find your favorite vehicle. Then stop by Parks at 919 Nashville Highway for a test drive. Parks GMC. We are professional grade. I'm Barbara Lincoln with Holland's Pharmacy. You may have heard our previous commercials about compression hosiery that we carry at Holland's Pharmacy. Well, we've recently expanded into a full line of knee braces, back, wrist, ankle, and other support wear. We will gladly help you get just the right fit for these items and, of course, special order items to ensure the proper fit. Come see us at Holland's Pharmacy, 1608 Hatcher Lane, or call us at 931-388-4233. 388-4233. American Standard Heating and Air Conditioning is built to a higher standard so you can focus on the problems in your life that actually matter. Like the stair that only creaks when everyone else in the house is asleep. American Standard Heating and Air Conditioning. Built to a higher standard. Call Davis Heating and Cooling at 931-388-2090 for all your home comfort needs. Davis Heating and Cooling is your local American Standard dealer and proudly serves the Murray County area. Find Davis Heating and Cooling online and on Facebook or call today, 388-2090. Serving Murray County for 40 years, the Jewelers Bench has provided the highest quality jewelry at the very best prices. They work hard to make their customers happy, and it's paid off. Their customers keep going back. Quality jewelry, custom vintage and estate pieces, and professional jewelry and watch repairs. We offer jewelry loans up to $4,500, and we will buy your gold. The Jewelers Bench, still here, still the same. 808 Trotwood Avenue, Columbia. 
Are you thinking about a new fence? Maybe you need a pole barn. Then you should give Sands Fence Company a call. That's 931-309-1644. Will Sands has built his business based on the principles of honesty, quality, and integrity. Sands Fence Company has been in business for over 20 years, providing the community with farm, residential, and commercial fencing, as well as pole barns and buildings. Call today for a free estimate. Sands Fence Company, 931-309-1644. 931-309-1644. 